What's up, everybody? Jay Miller here, back again. This is The Pitch Show, where I either sit down and just tell you a little bit about my week and the productivity insights that I've found in this tech journey, or like this week, I sit down with a wonderful guest that I have met on the internet, and we just have great conversations about whatever topics we bring to the table, hoping that you can find some productivity nugget out of it. And this week, I have a a newer friend to me, but not a new friend in the industry. Uh, John O. Young is a senior software engineer, originally from Australia, uh, loving the learning and mentoring of others. You can catch him uh, having a virtual coffee with some friends or working at Collab or working with Collab Coco. I don't, how do you say it, Jono? (laughs) Collab Lab Codes. Collab Lab 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 Codes. codes. There we go. (laughs) I knew I was going to mess it up halfway through, but Jono, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me on the show, Jay. Absolutely. Tell, give everybody like the the 30 second elevator pitch about your tech journey and uh, what you're doing now. Yeah, for sure. Um, so my tech journey started um, after it's kind of traditional. So I did a, a software engineering degree, um, finished up in 2014, started working at this health research institute, um, doing kind of iOS random stuff, and then moved into a Ruby on Rails project. And that's kind of when my career trajectory just completely changed. Um, I kind of fell in love with web development at that point. And then from that Rails project, I moved into something more of like a, a more Railsy role role and then eventually found my way into the States. And I worked in Chicago at a financial company and now um in Seattle. So out of out of the three, I've gotta ask the the super like Americanized question. <laughs> Which one's better, the states or or like? I mean, I know Australia will always be home, but like, I guess yeah. in terms of tech, like, which one do you feel has kind of a better grasp or a better uh, opportunity or environment? Yeah, I, I, you really can't beat the states for tech. Um, that is hundred percent like where you know everyone goes to. It's like the tech mecca. Um, not saying that Australia isn't good. Like, there's I think there's a bunch of places now, like some big companies like Coltramp and stuff have sprung up in Australia. Um, but yeah, like the the salaries in, in the US are kind of ludicrous. I think that was one of the first things that I realized was like having a conversation with um, developers in the UK and just talking. I felt so I felt bad because like I was I was trying to explain like trying to get into the tech you know space and figuring out like salary negotiations and stuff and I was like oh I I I have to be you know I'm only accepting offers at this number and and mm-hmm. and higher and they were just like that's twice what I make and I've been in the industry for like ten years now and I'm like mm-hmm. I don't know if that's my fault or your fault or like what's going on here I feel so bad though because I'm like over here rambling about like how many commas I need and you know they're just like mm-hmm. yeah you know that's that's a very American you know, thing, a lot of software developers elsewhere are not making money like that. Yeah, 100%. Um, it's definitely something that I've only ever seen in America as well. So let's let's talk about like, kind of the transition because you started at as a Ruby and Ruby on Rails developer, primarily, which most people think of me as a Python developer. But Funny story. I started with Ruby. I never made Ooh. it to Rails. I, I I basically thought like in my early days of like, 
hey, Ruby, let's learn Ruby. And then I, I got through all the beginner stuff. And then they were like, now let's start over and learn Rails. And I was like, nope, I'm done. <laughs> like, I'm out here. And then I learned that, I like, Py- Python has the exact same issues with, like, if you're doing, like, Python versus, like, web development in Python, it's almost like you have to start over in some areas. But, yeah, how's uh, how's how have things kind of changed now that you're you're doing Ruby on Rails, but also, like, looking at, like, Laravel and some of the, like, Node JavaScript-y type things? Yeah, for sure. Um, so actually at work, I've, I've kind of regressed. I, we actually stopped. I haven't been using Rails for a very long time at work. Um, primarily just focused on doing Ruby stuff now. So I've kind of gone back a step. Um, but yeah, I think um, I've, I've kind of missed that Rails world. And, and yeah, like I've definitely been looking at other kind of frameworks and languages out there. Um, like you said, JavaScript and um, not Laravel, but Phoenix, uh, which is kind of Elixir's web development framework. I have no um, idea what that is. <laughs> I've yeah, heard the yeah. words. I have no idea. Please, please and give me like the, the, the quick snippet of that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Elixir, the language, um, was written by Jose Valim, and it's based off this old language that's still in use right now, right now called Erlang. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, it's a, a functional programming language, but... The syntax kind of feels like Ruby. So Jose was actually kind of Ru- one of Ruby's um, contributors or maintainers or something. Um, and then Phoenix is kind of a, a web kind of framework. So think Rails, um, but Rails is built on Ruby. Phoenix is kind of built on Elixir. Okay, that makes sense then. So it's, yeah, but that's cool. I, I think that's, it's interesting how, yeah. you know, you have so many different ways that you can interact with stuff these days. I think that honestly, like when they say, Oh, what's the best language? You know, what's the best language to learn? It's just like, unless you're going into a very specific one where there's not as many resources for certain languages, like just pick one, pick one that's interesting to you and just keep going with it. Um, unless it's like, like Fortran. I mean, I'm right, sure yeah. you can, I'm sure you can find a job still and they will pay you a lot of money, but, uh, you're going to have a hard time. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. I completely agree with that. And that's something that you kind of, um, you, you don't see that in tech Twitter, like in tech Twitter, it seems like JavaScript is like the thing that you should learn and that everyone should be doing JavaScript. Um, and not a knock on JavaScript at all. I think it's a, a great language. Um, but you know, there's, there's other ways to learn programming and web development. I I think the biggest tack there is like everything on the web at the moment is going to be, or everything, I guess on modern, like web 2.5, I don't know what era we're in now is, is like something, something, something and JavaScript. So yes, it's almost like you have to know some pieces of JavaScript just to like, I mean, when your CSS is driven by JavaScript, it's like, Okay, yeah, I should probably learn a little bit of this. But I mean, at the end of the day, I think that there are so many great interpreters out there that like you can get away with, I don't want to say not knowing JavaScript, but not feeling like you have to, you know, have a mastery level of of JavaScript in order to develop for the web. Yeah, 100%. I think that's why like there's libraries like uh, Alpine.js, which is kind of like, um, you just like sprinkle in a little bit of JavaScript magic. Like there's stuff out there that kind of lets you get away with just knowing a little bit, which is which is really nice. So I I wanted to to chat with you about 
one big thing that you just did recently, which was, you know, this YouTube channel and the first video you put out there was looking back at your first five years. And I, I am very interested in this because I'm working on year one and in my mind, it's like, you know, I've been, I've been tech adjacent for so long for like seven, eight years now that I finally got into the, the industry quote unquote, but I feel as if I'm still learning those like year one lessons and your, your video was, was real. First of all, it was really good. It was well thought out, well planned. Like, so all of the kudos there, but also I, it was the first time I had seen a lot of these thoughts like collected into one and it not feel like it was too much because that that's where they always seem to kind of go off the rails is where it's like, here's 37 tips about how you can be a great developer. And no, this was just like, hey, I've been doing this for five years now. Here are the things that have seemed to work for me. So I'm, I'm going to go down this list here and I, I want your quick thought about that. The first one is asking for help. And I will say the only preface I will give to this before I let you take over is Mm. I feel like the stigma behind asking for help um, outside of the traditional means of stack overflow and, you know, kind of those areas, I feel like that is the hardest barrier to cross when you're starting out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so just before I dive in, thank you so much for watching the video. I really appreciate it. Um, like, and yeah. subscribe to that channel, watch <laughs> the video, ring the bell, all those things, oh my gosh. all that, all the stuff, all the marketing stuff. Um, so yes, I appreciate it. Um, yeah. Asking for help. I completely agree, especially when you're new. Um, and even, you know, even now, like as a, as a senior developer, like it's still, weird to ask for help like it's it feels like i'm losing um i think i mentioned the in the video it feels like i was failing uh, when i asked for help and there's that idea of like especially if you're in a small team as well where there's only one or two other developers they're always so busy so like i don't want to just like interrupt them and and break apart their day especially when um the thing i'm working on is in my mind it could be simple like i, I don't want to like bug them if it's like a really easy problem to fix and then i'm like oh i've wasted it all the time um, so yeah, it, it's definitely a stigma. It's definitely something hard to to get around. One of the things that I've I've seen that works really well in there, and I, I will say there is value in in having good Google foo. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I will yes. say that. Like I still struggle, and sometimes I I sat on like a call asking people for a bunch of like resources and stuff. And I felt bad because they were able to give me information, but it was like, wait a minute, how did you find out about this? Because I've been Googling for it, you know, all day and I haven't found anything. Uh, so I, I do think that there are, there are some skills that can learn, like knowing the right questions to ask. But yeah. I mean, that's, to me, that's the problem with like the Stack Overflow mentality is like, okay, have you looked for your answer on Stack Overflow? Okay, if you've looked for your answer, I'm not going to request that you ask your question on Stack Overflow because we've we've all seen it where it's like, here's here's all of my stuff. And then at the very end, you just see a comment that says, uh, marked as a possible duplicate. <laughs> and then like yeah. some other question, you're like, I looked, I promise I looked, I didn't find this one. So like, how do I do that? 
And I, I think that that is almost more damaging. But what I've seen to work really well is when you're engineering, I guess your senior engineering leadership can say, hey, we're going to take a certain amount of time out of the week to answer these questions so that everybody is on the same page. And like what we do is we just put them in a document. That way it's like, you don't have to put your name on it. You can just put the question and that way it can be as easy or as, you know, complex as you want. You don't have to answer like, Oh, Hey, whose question was this? It was just like, if you want to tell people it was yours, it was yours. But to me, having developers that don't know, are is worse than having developers that feel bad because they wasted a couple of minutes of someone's time. Yeah, 100%. And it goes like both ways, right? Like a company doesn't want a developer who's just unproductive because they're stuck. And then on the flip side, the developer is just like hitting their head against the wall and is just super frustrated. Like you don't want that experience either. Um, and I really like your point about asking the right questions because I think that's super important. Like you can't just be like, hey, help me. You have to kind of give a bit more information. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've kind of gotten better at that now. Where now I often say like, I am trying to do this, and when I mm -hmm. enter this code, I get this response. My question is: Is it something that like my code is doing, or am I am I missing something, or is this like a known issue? Because uh, I mean, sometimes that happens. Like I get bugs, and I report them to our engineering team, and they're like, "Yeah, that." That error report, that error is kind of vague. <laughs> we should probably yeah. write a better error message there. Um, and then that gives you an opportunity to contribute. So like mm -hmm. you're you're not always wasting people's time when you're asking questions. Like sometimes you're also making their job easier because now you know, you know, they know what they should be working on. Yeah, 100%. All right, let's go to the next one. Communication is key. Um, I feel like in a world where most of us have been plagued by multiple Zoom calls a day, um, over communication can. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to say that over communication is bad. And I do think that over communication can actually <clears throat> be a good thing. But I think that there's a level of. Here's how you do over communication properly. It's like you don't need to put everybody in a Zoom call and then have like half of the people asleep because it doesn't pertain to them right now. Right. But I think that there is like a level of doing things trans like, you know, in a level of transparency where it's like, hey, here's what everyone else is doing that may not involve you. But if you're interested, you can take a look. But then also make sure that you're letting the people on your team know what you're up to and how it directly impacts, you know, whatever you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, exactly. I think like the, like the mantra of, do I really need this meeting is, is still a right mantra, especially in this remote first world. Um, I, and I think like, yeah, you're right. Like moving the meeting, maybe not with zoom, it could be through some other means, but like, over communicating is still somewhat important. Like you still kind of need to have that, but just in maybe different forms, like asynchronously, or like you said, through documentation or having like mini notes and, and making sure that the right people are in the, the right meetings. Yeah. And there's a, a, have you found a good way to really address the, have I like, do we really need this meeting kind of idea? Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a hard one. I think it's, 100% like 
within the company culture. Um, that's like the first thing. And then anytime I see a meeting with no agenda, uh, that's red flags to me. <laughs> like what's the point of this meeting if there's no agenda? Um, and then any, it's, it's asking myself like, will this information help me? And will I actually provide some value in this meeting? Um, or am I just here to, to sit in and to show face? Yeah. And I mean, sometimes showing face, depending on the company mm. culture can also be mm -hmm. a thing. Uh, yeah. Shout out to my old jobs. <laughs> like, why am I yep. in this meeting? Because they want to see you there. Like that's, that is the answer. Yep. Um, I think, I think something that we've tried to do um, now is like, anytime we have a meeting, it's like, if we think the meeting needs to take an hour, we'll make it 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and if we run up to the 40 minute and we realize that there's a lot more that needs to be discussed, we will then talk about like, okay, when can we schedule a follow-up meeting? What can we do outside of that meeting to make things happen? And what you really, what you wind up realizing is that in most cases you didn't need an hour, like 45 was enough. Sometimes yeah. 30 is good. Uh, but I think the other thing is, is always, it's almost like how we used to, when we plan like our timelines, like, oh, hey, how long is this going to take? If it's supposed to take an hour, you say it'll take like four hours uh, just yep. in case. It, it's kind of like doing that. You're like, hey, when should we have the next meeting? If you want it to be next week, make it two weeks from now. <laughs> that way you have, you have space for things to develop and that you can, again, you can check in and provide that asynchronous kind of update of like, hey, you know, we were talking about this. Here's an update of what's going on. Do you think we still need this follow-up meeting? Because sometimes stuff just resolves itself in time. Yeah, 100%. I think you actually bring up a, an interesting point with like, um, there's some rule or law where it's like, if you set a number of hours, it's always going to take up that number of hours. So like on the flip side, if you have a meeting that really should only be 30 minutes and you set it for an hour, it's 100% just going to take that full hour. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's jump into the third one. This one was the one that I had a lot of questions on because of just yeah. my, my quirky nature. Having start a career document. What? Okay. First of all, tell everybody what, in, in your words, what a career document is. Yeah. So um, I think I heard this term somewhere on the internet where they called it like a, a kick-ass document. Um, but to me, a career document is where you list your achievements in your work, um, plus like the impact that you had. And it would just be kind of a list of these things. So when you come up to your yearly review or say you're writing a resume, you can just pull from this list uh, because I have terrible memory. So when I think about what I've done like a year ago, um, I, there's, there's no way unless I've written it down. <laughs> I can only either remember like things I've done within the first like last few months or if there's a project that was like really painful. Uh, yeah, that, that'd be the only way I'd remember that. Remember that. I feel like it's almost like a lessons learned document because in, in yeah. many cases, if we're working on open source projects or even if we're working within our team on like kind of the closed source background, there's some there's some like level of source control there. So mm -hmm. like we can see the code that we've done. And I mean, there is kind of a history there, but I think that there's the things that you miss are the things that get overwritten or, you know, reformatted or cleaned up in history. And I think that having those bits and de of details as I drop my phone on my toe, um, <laughs> having that information is definitely the stuff that gets lost in translation. And I think a good example of that is I got asked, 
um, by a friend to like help them with like some web scraping project. And it was like, yeah, I've done this plenty of times and I know the exact like thing that you're trying to accomplish because I've done it before. However, I don't have access to that code anymore. Um, so then I'm like winding up having to do the research and figuring out like, okay, how would I do this now? How would I go here? How would I do this? How would I make these connections? And it's like, had I written that stuff down and had it been like obfuscated and just like, oh, this isn't, this isn't like how you connect to this company's stuff. This is when you're faced with this type of problem, here's a solution that you can implement. Um, I feel like it would have made my life a little bit easier and, and less mentally taxing. Yeah. So I think lessons learned is like super important because you kind of have a history of like, how do I do things? Um, I think a creative document, like the benefit of having this is like, you also write down kind of the, the business impact you have. So, you know, for that example, um, maybe you wrote down some documentation on how you do this. So next time someone comes and tries to like connect this thing, um, you can easily show them. And the impact is, well, now I've onboarded someone much faster. Like it took them a few like days rather than weeks or months to actually do this. So I think having that business impact is super important um, because that's something that you can, get, again, bring up to your yearly reviews or have in your resume. Yeah. And, and I will also say that I think a big thing of that too is teams should have a, a career document yes. in some ways. Like there needs to be some type of, of, trail of like, we did this because this was the thing to do at the time. <laughs> like, cause that's, that's always the things you go back, you look at this code and you're like, who wrote this and why? And you're like, well, I mean, that was just, that was what we were doing at the time. And here's all of our documentation showing maybe you were a, a Ruby shop. So like, maybe there's a defined way to do like code comments and things in Ruby. So you just always did that. And now you've switched over to JavaScript and there's a completely different way. So you know, while it looks like spaghetti code, it can provide a little bit of context as to like, oh, yeah, some of these comments were just kind of copy and pasted over. Maybe that's why stuff like this happens. And I know I'm, I'm kind of given like a very like arbitrary, you know, top like topic there or subject there. But I, I think it is important that when you have, you know, for instance, you, you're working with Elixir and Phoenix and these are functional paradigms. So mm -hmm. if you switch over to Python, the, there are some functional things like there are iter tools and stuff like that in Python. So if you're working at a shop that is very like object oriented, you know, to begin with, and you start throwing lambdas all over the place, they're going to be mm -hmm. like, Whoa, what is this? And you're like, well, I come from a functional background. So this, this is kind of how this is what we've always been taught. And then from there they can go, okay, now let me show you how like you can break this Lambda up and then put it as like a method inside of a class and it does some other stuff. Uh, so I, I think that not just having like the individuals having their own document to show like, Hey, this is where I'm coming from. This is where I want to go. But then mm -hmm. also the company saying, well, this is where we've been coming from. <laughs> and maybe this is some of the headaches that we've run into. And this is why we, we don't do some of the things that we do now. Yeah, for sure. I think like having that like uh, company history is super important. And like, you know, there's there's a, that feeling that you should kind of follow the patterns within the company. Um, and I would completely say like, if you're writing kind of functional paradigm and object uh, oriented company, like definitely question that because sometimes the, the answer is like, oh, we've just always done it this way. And that's not like the best answer. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like 
in some cases, like as long as everybody is on the same page, mm-hmm. like you can you can make a request to do something differently. You can be like, well, this might be better, but people are going to need to know. And that actually is yes. kind of a good segue into the next one, which is like having context is powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yes, a hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> like there's really not much to say about that. Like if, if you understand the why, then, uh, you, you won't, I don't want to say you won't feel like things will tend to make more sense if you understand the why, like, Hey, why are mm-hmm. we doing it this way? Well, you see the last time we did it this way, something happened or, well, did you know that in this context, doing this, having this type of thing gives you these benefits. Yes. It might be, you know, 0.001% less perform, you know, less performant, but at the same time, it's twice as readable and we've edited this code 57 times now. So we'd much rather have readable code than highly efficient code. <laughs> yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. And like, I think, um, like learning that context really fast is like one of the best ways you can kind of like further your career because like i've seen the senior devs and the principal devs like to just know like everything like they're the go-to engineer and you're like you kind of want to be those people and like they just have the context i feel like a a good distinction between kind of that mid-level developer and the senior developer is like the mid-level developer knows the how the senior level developer knows the why Mm-hmm. And I, I really feel like that is something that can be developed over time. However, I will also say that putting people in kind of junior, mid-tier, senior level doesn't really work because one company's, you know, mid-level developers, another company's senior level developer, principal developer, or whatever. So it's it's really hard to do that. But I think in terms of what your thought pattern should be as, as kind of a junior developer, it's like absorb everything, learn, just keep learning, always be wanting to learn. But then as you mature into your developer space, you know how to do it. But the question is, do you know why it's important to do it one way versus another way? And I think that's where having, having that understanding of like, okay, what is the context in which we're doing a thing? Yeah, for sure. I think like early on in my career, I I focused a lot on learning the language and learning how to do certain things. And a lot of that time is is spent learning that. Like I didn't have enough kind of mental capacity to like learn about the business and stuff. But context isn't something that they teach you in bootcamp um, and it's different for every single company. Um, And as you start to kind of wrap your head around the language and, and stuff like that, that's when you can open up to learning the context and understanding how things actually work and, and why they work. Yeah. And let's jump into the last one because I feel like there's going to be some real, some real thoughts here. Um, <laughs> don't compare yourself to others. This yes. it's so hard. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not even going to think about it in terms of being a developer, uh, mostly because as a developer, there's a lot of, you know what you know, and you know what you don't know. So like you can learn the things that other people know. The question is one, should you? And then also like, have you had a reason to learn that thing yet? Um, But I want to, I want to talk about this kind of in the concept of being a creator being like a, a technical content creator. I have a problem with individuals who claim to be professionals that are really just trying to figure it all out. Mm. 
And I mean, there's, there's nothing saying that you can't be a professional that doesn't know things. Um, I feel like I have made a career out of not knowing things. <laughs> so, um, I, I want to, to think about the idea of you are creating content based on your life, your journey, your skill set, and your knowledge. Anything outside of that is something that is outside of your control. Like you can't, you can't try to teach people about, you know, data science using Python if you've never written Python. You know, it, it's just not going to work. Uh, well, I mean, maybe it will. I don't know. Who am I to judge? Maybe you can figure it out. But I, I feel like instead of trying to go where the majority is, trying to go where the audience is and things like that, there's something said about having a thing that you're passionate about and sharing that passion with others. Yeah, um, that was really well said. Really well said. Um, you remind me of this video by, there's a YouTube channel called Developer Ed or Dev Ed. Um, he's a kind of programmer as well. And he actually did a video where like, he pointed out that like uh, lots of people are doing non-coding tutorials and like, you know, they're just doing like day in the life of an engineer and they get like hundreds and thousands of views when people that are trying to do this screencast are kind of not getting like any views. So it's like, well, do you go and chase kind of the more entertainment value videos because of the numbers or do you do something that you actually think will help people and, and passionate about? I think that's like a really hard balance to find where you're trying to figure out like, okay, I want to do this thing because I think it helps people, but also... Uh, no one watches it. So is it worth doing? I think that there's something about doing content for a very specific audience. Um, I mean, this this show as a, as a whole has been kind of a very wild, it's had like a wild journey through mm-hmm. like the different topics, who I talk to, who I interview. Um, and a lot of that has been driven based on my experiences in life. It's not, it's never like, oh, hey, I've got this waiting list of, you know, 37 people that have books that they want to promote that, you know, have come to to show you how you can be the most organized person in the world if you follow this technique. Like, I, I avoid that stuff like the plague. Um, yeah. But, oh, wow, I realize, I just realized how weird that that phrase is going to be in the future. They're going to be like, which one? <laughs> But, but like for me, it's, it's been a lot of my recent conversations have been like working with Python developers that know more than me that are trying to advance in their career as they've started kind of creating content for themselves, but then also examining kind of what it's like to be a content creator when you have things like ADHD, when you have, cause I mean, this is a lot of stuff that I, I never got treatment for until my thirties. And Mm. at that point you're like, Oh, I'm learning the stuff that, you know, some folks may have learned in their early teens for the first time. And there's probably someone out there that is looking for that same information. And again, when you hear someone who's like 18 telling you how they made a thousand dollars last month on Fiverr, like, the workflow is very different from an 18 year old with little to no responsibilities and like a 30 year old with a mortgage and a family and children. So like being able to provide the context of 
here's my life and here's how some of these things are worked through it tend to make for very unique content. And even if there aren't hundreds of thousands of people looking for it, I feel like the people that do find it have been searching kind of like, kind of like what I was mentioning earlier, like when, when your Google foo isn't that strong and you know, Mm. you're not able to figure out what you're looking for and it's like, I want to make more content for the people that have been struggling to find solutions to their problems because their problems are a lot like mine. And I'm giving them the best advice that only someone in my situation can give. Yeah. hundred percent. I think to, to tack onto that, like there's lots of, there's lots of uh, videos about how to do something, right? Like if you think about like, oh, if I want to learn React, there's so many videos on how to learn React, but that's awesome because everyone has their own voice. And like you said, everyone has their own experience about learning it. And um, I think there's this highway analogy that I heard somewhere um, where it's like, there's always someone in front of you who's like doing the right thing. And there's always someone behind you who's trying to like follow your footsteps. So like, it's always kind of interesting to know that someone will always be there who will like need your content. Well, Jono, I, I hate that we spent the entire show kind of just, we, we took 30 minutes to talk about something that you covered so well and so promptly in about five. Uh, so I, I thank you for, for coming on the show and, and breaking down some of this stuff a little bit deeper. Um, tell everybody where they can find you so that we can jump into my favorite part of the show, which is uh, said after show. All right, let's do it. Um, so you can find me on Twitter um, at John O'Young. Um, and then I have a YouTube channel that, you know, we just started or we just started. Um, and hopefully they'll be linked somewhere in the show notes because I think it's just a random set of letters and numbers right now. So I don't really know what the URL is. We'll definitely get it in the show notes. And, uh, <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, like I said, thank you so much for being a, a great guest. This has been The Pit Show. I've been your host, Jay Miller. Um, again, if you enjoyed this show, get show a friend. Uh, tell people on Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you, you do social these days, uh, the pitch show. Well, I guess I have a YouTube channel as well, which again, I'm, I'm very much in the same position as Jono. So like, uh, there will be links to both there. There might even be a snippet from this episode, uh, and kind of me kind of reflecting on it a little bit more down the road. So, uh, keep an eye out there. And of course, be sure to check out all the other things that I'm doing, the several other podcasts, the talks and all this other stuff over at kjymiller.com. And yeah, we've got an after show to get to. So, um, in a few seconds, this is going to become Jono's show. He's going to be interviewing me, asking me questions about whatever he wants to ask. I don't know what they are. He probably doesn't even know what they are at this point. <laughs> so, with that said, this has been the Pin Show. I've been Jay Miller, and for Jono and myself, uh, I don't know, go be productive or something. But, Jono, are you ready for the after show? Let's do it. Ready as all ever be. All right, you know the rules. There aren't any. Whatever questions you have, however long you need to go, just let me know. Uh, yeah, from this point on, the show is yours. All right. Wow. Um, I really should have thought some questions. Um, so, <laughs> so Jay, I think you mentioned that you've been a developer advocate for a year now. Is that right? Uh, I've been a developer advocate for six months now. So Six months. Yeah, okay. so six months. 
So um, what would you tell your six-month past self about developer, developer advocacy? Uh, six months ago, I'd have been like, for real, though, take your time. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like I did a decent job. I, I also have started to kind of see some of the areas that I messed up, uh, which is why I have several conference talks that I'm giving in the next like few weeks. That's like awesome. I have like no time for relaxation for the next mm-hmm. like month. Um, everything's going to be a mad, mad scramble. But I think that would be like the one lesson is like, Ooh, don't do that again. Like space, space out your conferences you know, give yourself time to really focus on talks because I, I feel like at the end of the day, if you're over, if you're overstretching yourself, you're only going to reduce the quality of the content that you're putting out there. And that hurts everybody. Um, and I think that's like the hardest part is like, if you're, if you're just doing, you know, one thing, like we have, we have one advocate that all that they do are workshops and the workshops are amazing. <laughs> it's yeah. like there, there's like a waiting list for people to like have her present her workshops at like their events. So it's like they're doing the same thing over and over and over again. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I want to play with this. and I want to play with that. and I want to play with this thing over here. And it's like maybe find like one or two things and focus on that. And give yourself space that you can present, come back, think about how you can improve it, and then present it again at the next one and make it better. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Um, I feel like that just applies to like life in general as well. Um, okay, so next question. Should everyone create content? Um, everyone should create content. Not everyone should be a content creator. If that makes sense. Um, I think that there is a benefit to being able to explain how you did a thing, Uh, whether you're, you know, you don't have to be a YouTuber. You don't have to be a podcaster. If you hate the sound of your own voice, podcasting is not for you. If (laughs) you don't like how you look on a camera, YouTube is not for you. Um, Unless, unless you can get over that, unless you can build up some confidence in those areas. But I, I think that there is something to say about finding the best way that you can express the content that, that you have that needs to be made and sharing it. And like you said, that's, that's kind of why I wanted to push back a little on the, like the creator document, because we've been told for so long, like, oh, you should have a blog. Oh, you should write down all of the, the technical problems and stuff in your blog and things like that. Mm-hmm. And like at this point now, like every developer I know, including myself, has a newsletter. Everyone like is mm-hmm. on the Substack wagon. Everyone's, you know, people are doing TikToks, people are doing YouTube channels. And if I'm honest, I don't I don't really consume all that much. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. I I I look for the information for a problem that I have and that's it. Like I'm not following people weekly for all of the stuff that they're doing because I just don't have the the bandwidth to do it. So I think that if there is something that you've done that was unique or, you know, different by all means, share it and share it. However you feel comfortable sharing it. And don't, don't worry about, you know, adding jump cuts and all these other things to it to make it look great. Just like get the content out there. But at the same time, like if, if your YouTube channel only has three videos and you know, 
it's it's three videos that are going to be super helpful. I'm still going to watch that content. I may not subscribe, but I'm going to watch it. And mm. you're helping people. But if you're just trying to churn out content to feed the algorithm like that, to me, I think the algorithm is like the the criminal in all of this because it makes it harder for people to find what they're looking for because it wants to first serve you the people that are super consistent that are basically just creating fluff to to continue to garner clicks right uh, yeah uh, absolutely um you're, you're definitely at the mercy of the algorithm um which i think that's why like everyone has started like a newsletter just to try and get a word like around the algorithm um, but yeah, I totally, totally hate points. I, I think the problem with that though is like, what are, what are people writing about? <laughs> like, it really yeah. like I I struggle with my newsletter. I my newsletter comes out like once a month, and it's often because after a month, I'm like, hey, I've got this project that I've been working on for the last month. I've got these talks that I'm doing, and all this. So like, I finally feel like I have enough to talk to people about. But if I was writing every single week, it would be like a snippet of of that newsletter piece. And it would just be like, Hey, I learned about this thing and that's it. And then a newsletter is kind of an ephemeral thing. It's not like, I don't see people going through the archives of people's newsletters and wondering like, Oh, Hey, what was that one thing that they were talking about? So it's almost like a newsletter is a way to catch up with your friends and, and talk about stuff. But if you're doing it, it's like having a phone call every single week with someone, like eventually those phone calls, you just stop finding things to talk about. Yeah, 100%. And there's so many newsletters out there. Like, I've subscribed to so many. I feel like newsletter fatigue is a, is a thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Um, so, last question. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just going to be a really random one because first one that's on the top of my head. Uh, what do you eat for breakfast? Uh, coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, Edible coffee. I, well, I mean, there, there's a whole other military life kind of, yes, instant <laughs> coffee is edible. No, you should not eat it. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. I, I tend to do like hard boiled eggs. Yeah. Uh, we're kind of getting on that. I've been trying to lose a little bit of weight. So like a lot of like boiled egg whites. No, that's mm-hmm. kind of, yeah, it's sad. Uh, Solid choice though. It is. It is. I actually learned that while I was in the military, like when we we would have to like cut weight for, you know, all of our regulations, all the stuff. Oh, you got to be under this weight if you're this tall and whatever. And like they want you to work out and stuff, but also you're putting on all that muscle mass. So you like you try to like shred at that point. Oh, my gosh. Um, Yeah. Hardcore. Well, yeah. It's, I'm, I make it sound, I was on a boat, so okay. <laughs> you don't have, you don't have much time to do and You don't really have many other things that you can do other than work out at that point. Um, yeah. but I, I think like I, my favorite breakfast would probably be like a caprese sandwich or like, a. Like I love Eggos. <laughs> like I know that's probably like my biggest. That's why I'm struggling to lose weight is because I just love Eggo <laughs> waffles. Like I am, a, I am a kid of the the late '80s, early '90s. So amazing. <laughs> that's fantastic. I've never had Eggos, so I actually what? have no idea what that's like. Yeah. What? Go to the yeah. store, get you some yeah. Eggos, stick them <laughs> in a toaster. I mean, it's it is literally just a cheap waffle. It is. Yeah. It is not a. <laughs> But it's a convenient waffle. 
But I, you know, I tell people that like sometimes I want bad Chinese food. Like it's, I know it's not great. I know it's not the best thing in the world. I know it's not going to be like, you know, a $150 meal at like PF Chang's or something like that. Like I want, I want like just bad for you food because it's comforting in some ways. (laughs) Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Just give me that orange chicken. Oh, well, I mean, you're up in Washington, so how often do you go to, um, it's Dick's Burgers, right? Um, why does that sound familiar? I feel like I've heard about it, but I don't know if I've actually been there. There's, there's two places in Seattle that every time I go up there, I have to go to. And one is, and I want to just make sure that I've got the right one. Yeah, it's Dick's Old Fashioned Burgers. Um, Because I I couldn't remember if it was like Dick's or like Dickie's Old Fashioned, because there's a barbecue place down here called Dickie's that's so confusing. Mm. But yeah, there's one in Capitol Hill. I think that's actually the one that we went to. Um, Really good. (laughs) But very simple and very bad for you, probably. Um, And then the other one is is Biscuit Bitch, which is... Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. (laughs) So... It's delicious. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am very much a. Uh, oh man, Seattle, my home away from home. I guess <laughs> it's a great place. Yeah, I'm still kind of exploring things. I think I moved during the pandemic, so not a great time to move. <laughs> but yeah. yes, um, but yeah, no, it's it's been it's been really great. Yeah, I've we've we've spent time. So I, I I think the one good thing about that is like when you're a tourist, like you can afford yep. like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay for a week on Bainbridge Island and then take the ferry into town like every day, mm-hmm. and it's like that's fine for like a week. Like yep. if you're doing that like every day, that would probably get old. But you know, looking at areas like Renton and Kent, like I've I've wanted to figure out like. How do I how do I get to spend at least five or six years living in, mm. living in Seattle? And it hasn't happened yet, but but maybe one day. Yeah. Well, if you ever come up, let's let's definitely catch up. Absolutely. I've got I've got a few friends up there now, so uh, I don't know. I travel when traveling's a thing. <laughs> yeah. So once once traveling's a thing, I'm sure I'll be up there, or I'll be in Vancouver, and can yep. can make time. For sure. 